You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we're the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we're at the Extreme History Headquarters, speaking in person, so exciting, with Jan Zuha about her career as an outreach librarian. And Jan, I think everyone knows what a librarian is, but I believe very few people actually know what a librarian does, um, much less a research librarian. So we are going to delve into that a little bit, and I want you to, I want you to spill it all, really. Okay, so Absolutely. we know. <laughs> all right, and so before we, we get to our questions, uh, and they will be probing questions indeed, we want to do a little bit of your very interesting bio. For our listeners, so Jan Zuha has been a faculty member in the MSU library since 1995. She holds a master's in English from Clark University in Massachusetts and a master's in library and information science from the University of Iowa. In her former lives, she has been a teamster, a fry cook, and a college writing instructor. Her current work as humanities and outreach librarian has been centered in the MSU Library's archives and special collections since 2018. Jan's outreach and teaching focus on advancing knowledge and the use of the archives and special collections by everyone, okay? Not just dorky historians like ourselves. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Well, welcome, Jan. We're so excited to have you here. Thanks, you guys. I'm really happy to be here. And to be here in person. We're so, we are socially distanced, and yeah. we're just very excited. Yes. Yes. We're distanced, and we have our masks ready in case we get too yes. excited. And, right, yeah. exactly. exactly. <laughs> and Steve, um, our, our lovely, um, I don't know, what do we call him? Our tech guru, our, our editor, podcast host, our editor, editor, everything. Our, all of the above. He, he's, <laughs> he's making sure we don't get too crazy today with Jan. Right, so, right. Yeah, he'll help us out. <laughs> well, Jan, we're so glad you're here with us today. We've been talking about having you on this podcast since since the very beginning. And so we finally wrangled you to have you on. So we're so glad you're here with us. Um, and Jan, we've had the opportunity to work together a few times over the past few years in the archives, the special collections at Montana State University. And it's been so fun. And I've, I've just so enjoyed getting to know you these past few years and seeing your enthusiasm and your passion for what you do. And for me, that's, that's what it's all about. I love to be around people who are passionate about their work Absolutely. and passionate about what they what they bring to it and you are that here here so can you tell us a little bit about when you first knew you were interested in the science of libraries I love the way you put that the science <laughs> of libraries well I my nickname as a child was smarty pants so oh, that's kind nice. of a giveaway there are um, you the only one who's had that nickname <laughs> We'll edit that out. Uh, you know, <laughs> if you ask 
that's every librarian. They're yeah. probably all smarty pants. Exactly. So we all sort of, it's a band of brothers, women, sisters, whatever. Nice. But um, I, I don't know. I guess I was an early reader, and I always knew that books would have to be some part of my life, even as I think a, like a 10-year-old, I knew that somehow. And I went on to become a college um, writing instructor and realized I would starve to death. And so I oh, then... Oh, goodness. Yeah. Because, yeah, wow. you know, I mean, yeah. I am a, I'm a huge fan and supporter of the humanities, and I'm deeply embedded in the humanities, but I also know I have to. We always, in the humanities, as you well know, Every, you have to find a way to make a living. And um, I had worked in libraries from the time I was probably 16 until I went off to do my master's in English. Um, and uh, so I, I knew that world, and I loved, I have always loved libraries, so... That was a logical way for me to make sense of my master's degree in English was to go on to become a, an academic librarian and to hope that I could be a humanities librarian. And so I'm one of those really fortunate people who actually get to do the job they've always wanted to do. That's amazing. Do you remember your first library that you used to go to as a kid? Oh, yeah. That was the old Carnegie in Boise because I'm from Boise and the big big painted pictures that were sort of pre-Raphaelite kind of feeling I'm sure they weren't pre-Raph paintings but um and the just the the librarians who were who I later worked with who were um, these wonderful Uh. older women who were very stereotypical except that they were very nice people and you know the stereotype of the librarian is not a fun stereotype for us to try and live down I know and you know I think that's one of the things when I met you I was like well she's not like what I think a librarian is <laughs> supposed to be Thank and you. she's so chic right I know, I yes, know. Yes. her hair her glasses yeah, her jewelry everything, I know everything yeah, yeah. Well, you know, going back to you saying that your first library was the Carnegie, um, there was there's been a lot of interest in Carnegie libraries in Montana mm-hmm. because a book was published by Kate Hampton recently right. about all the Carnegie libraries throughout Montana, and so um, my first library was a Carnegie library as well in Livingston. I was so, wondering, mm-hmm. so they still have that building there? Is yep, and well, it's they've still the it into yeah, yeah, it's one of those towns that has. Um, reconstructed around it right yeah yeah, they added on to the back and but it's always been you know the Carnegie Library has always been the town library and it still is today so it's just amazing those Carnegie libraries really in all these small towns throughout the west are so critically important they really are great and you know I'm fortunate to have a really good friend who's an archivist at UCLA and he spends a lot of time on eBay this is another thing that archivists do oh yeah I don't because I don't really on eBay okay yeah you know so purchasing ephemera purchasing so he has bought postcards of all of the Montana libraries for me over the years and every once in a while I'll get a packet in the mail of these postcards of libraries because libraries were a big thing obviously in every community and so they would create a postcard wow and so he'll find them for sale on eBay and I have an amazing collection of Montana library postcards Carnegie's and otherwise yeah it was so different for me I was the youngest and when we were when we moved to New Jersey I was just three so I was young my sisters were in school and my mom loved to read she was a voracious reader so we would drive to Dutch Neck which was where my middle school ended up being but it was kind of a very small rural community outside Princeton and it was an old, it feels like it was an old church. Like I'm trying to remember, mm. see if I'm remembering it right. It was white on the outside. Very, and it was one of those super creaky 
buildings, you know, you'd walk and, and it was when you had to be really quiet. Oh, yeah. And you were just, shh, because I don't know, I don't even know why. I don't think anyone was studying in there, but you had to be really quiet. Well, reading was a solitary activity then. And every time you walked down the aisle to look for a book, you know, creak, creak with every step. Um, but it, it had that smell and the, the ink stamping the date. I just yeah. loved the whole. So I'd get to go with my mom all the time. Yeah. She would go almost every week because she'd read so fast. And I would get to check out books. So I have such a, a fond memories of it, you know, and, and the whole sound of it and everything like that. But but you guys actually had really beautiful Carnegie buildings, which... We were really did. fortunate. And yeah. mom would take my sister and I after we cleaned the house, actually sometimes before, which was always a mistake. And then my <laughs> brothers would go hunting with my father. Huh. So we got the, I think, uh, yeah. the better end yeah. of that deal because right. I didn't want to kill things or... Right. Got things. <laughs> but I'm sure they were like, cool, we got to gun oh, things sure. with knives. Guns, guns, yeah. Oh, boy. You know? so every, everyone was happy. Well, was everyone books, was books. And I remember I would try to dust while I read. Oh, really? So I distinctly yeah. remember that she made the mistake of taking us before. Right. So, so Jan, as an um, outreach librarian, um, can you tell us what that job consists of? you know explain it a little bit more for people and maybe tell us a little bit about your favorite part of the job too Mm -hmm. yeah so you know we've been talking about sort of nostalgic library experiences and had libraries stayed that way we probably wouldn't have them now right because you know we have been early adopters of technology uh, which few people would connect with a library but in fact that's the case and that's ongoing and so um, I think that one of the things that I love about being an outreach, li- outreach librarian now is that it is so much easier and yet so much more necessary than it once was. So I think my position would not have existed when we were kids because everybody knew what the library was. You knew what to expect there. You knew why you would go there. You didn't need somebody who would say, let's go out into the community and help them understand what a library is or help them understand what an archive is or what a a collection looks like. And so um, my position is really born of that kind of acknowledgement that libraries can no longer be passive institutions, unchanging. And I'm not suggesting that an outreach librarian is the one who creates all the change, but we are helping everybody understand what that change has looked like and that libraries both combine the old nostalgic things that we all loved with this new incredible stuff which you all have used in your studies Um, but you may not have connected them with a library per se because they were easily gotten to online so I'm trying to make the library not become invisible if you provide really good service online you essentially become seamless and invisible right so you you all everybody needs to understand that the library is both a place still it's a physical place but it's also this immense digital virtual space as well so it's a great it's a really cool i love the job because it combines the the past and the present and the future and for you it's engaging with the community as well to see what people want and need but also to to tell them about what's available to tell them what's available but also to help them imagine what can be done with what's available uh, so right right not a, i wouldn't be very happy if it were just this passive look here's here's a book you might like this book <laughs> or here's a database 
But, you know, and one example of that is when we did the Ivan Doig um, archive exhibit at the, um, the state fair, the um, Big Sky Country State Fair in 2017, we did an experiential 1,600-square-foot um, exhibit on an archive. And we had never done anything like that before. Yeah, that must have been exciting to be it a was, part of. Yeah. yeah, it was really exciting, and it was... So much work, we haven't done it again. <laughs> but it was, a, it was, you know, over 2,000 people, who many of whom had never read or heard of Ivan Doig, came through and, and experienced it. So, yeah, so that's an example of what I mean when I say outreach. It can be yeah. Yeah. something that elaborate. It can also be me participating in uh, a community, thing, like what I have done with you, Crystal, yeah, with, right, for right. instance, um, World War I or with the suffrage um, commemorative thing. Suffrage Centennial. Yes, thank yeah. you. <laughs> the thing. That thing. That that's thing okay. that That's a good word when we year. need one. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and what, when you were talking, Jan, it made me think about our workshop that we did together a few years ago where we um, collectively brought in participants who weren't um, people who had been into the Montana State University Library for years, maybe never, and you and we walked them through some of those amazing genealogical databases that are available yeah. at your library and at every library. Right. And, yeah. and, you know, like you said, it's great that people know they're there, but a lot of times those are hard to navigate and hard to use. Yeah. So you really helped people navigate through some of those databases like newspapers.com and ancestry.com and chronicling America, chronicling America uh-huh. all those all those goodies that yeah. people don't understand exist and that they don't understand you know are, are free I, it breaks my heart when people buy a subscription to ancestry.com when the public library and the MSU library both have access so right yeah. right and the community <laughs> here can become members and patrons you don't have to be a student or right. a staff or faculty member. right so you can come in and get a, a, a montana bar citizens borrower card and you just have to have, bring a piece of id with you and that gives you the privilege to borrow um, and to use you know anyone can actually walk into our library and use sit down and use the databases at the computers there mm-hmm. what you can't do even if you get a borrower's card if you're not affiliated with MSU is use the databases outside of the library so in other words you can't log in from your home on your from couch. your coffee shop right. whatever right okay. yeah so uh you so know it's so not the same as if you are an MSU right. student so, in that sense okay so we as MSU people have carte blanche with everything you know if we're it's in, an amazing resource if we're in madagascar we right. we can get into this stuff right but um yeah. yeah yeah and that and that's goes for public libraries too you have if you go in you can use all those databases so it's just not a university library but other but your public libraries right. have those services too and your library card allows you to get yeah. online access at a coffee shop to the bozeman public libraries database so right that it's just a different, you know, licensing. These these are hugely expensive databases, and so licensing for them is quite um, is astounding, and yeah. it has to be adhered to, or you're breaking the law. Right, right, so, right, right. But that's so great to know that all you have to do is is walk in. You don't actually have to have it um, at your home. And I I always love going to the library and sitting there and doing work. I feel like I've always done my best thinking. It's just I don't have my own stuff around. So, Jan, another thing that you do is a lot of book clubs, mm-hmm. and you host mm-hmm. book clubs, and you participate in book clubs, and 
at Extreme History Project, we started a book club um, last year during COVID time. We kind of decided to start this amazing book club, and it's just gone. Um, you know, it's just it's just been a huge part of now what we do because we so enjoy it, and it it was really helped people engage with history. And so, you've been a part of that book club, and you've helped helped us facilitate some of those um, discussions. And we um, talk about nonfiction books. We talk about um, memoirs. We talk about we just did our first fiction. Yes, book, she did a fiction, yeah, and that was a big move. But I'm so glad mm-hmm. we did it, and I hope we do more fiction because, yeah. like you said, you pointed out it's. It's really important to help understand history through fiction. And so so I hope we do more um, historical fiction as well, because that's, what, of course, one of my favorite things in the I, world. I think, actually, the, the historical fiction gets you super interested in mm-hmm. that background narrative and then makes you more open to reading someone who's done the research. and docu- I think if you start with a documentation that kind of research you might not even know you're interested in it because you haven't heard all the stories so I think you're right that historical fiction can kind of lead you into history in a different way yeah and we did a few memoirs too and those can really Mm. lead you into history Mm -hmm. in an amazing way as well we all learn together so so that was great but what are your thoughts on book clubs and and why do you think they're so important well I have moved away from using the word club to the to word group, for one thing, oh, okay. because clubs often make people think it's exclusive, and the ones that I run are not exclusive. I mean, I do one for Wonderless where, you know, it is, I think, strongly advised that you become a member of Wonderless to join the book group, but there is no cost involved in otherwise. Um, and I think, you know... Um, I really feel that books always, we've always known, they broaden us, they, they deepen our knowledge, they broaden our experience, and they engage our imaginations and our curiosity. And I think that with book groups, they also then can connect us. You know, so that's my great pleasure. And I think the book group thing is probably one of the funnest things I get to do because I get to do some research into the book and the author and bring that to the table and not lecture. I'm not a fan of lecture because I like participatory things much more. And I think everybody gets more out of participatory. So I just really um, find them to be a sort of drink at the well, especially in this pandemic time. And I've been very amazed to see how well, for instance, the the uh, Extreme History Book Group has gone really well, totally yeah. Uh, you never had an in-person meeting. No. Whereas my friends of the MSU Library Group has moved from 20 years as an in-person group to online only now, I mean, for now. And we have more people attending than we did when we had it in person. And so that's pretty amazing to me, and it tells me that people are hungry for this. Yeah. Um, I think it was really helpful... (laughs) um, that we started it during COVID time because people were just, it, we started it a few months in and people were just hungry for seeing each other, you know. And so even though we couldn't see each other in person, it was just nice to be able to see other people and have a conversation about something that you all had in common, you know, which mm-hmm. is the book. Right. So And everybody's equal on that little panel of, yep. you know, people's faces, the gallery view. and. And I think that helps too. I, I, just, I was I was going to yeah. ask you a couple things. One is, um, what do you think makes a good book book group? 
Is there a secret sauce? Kind uh, of yeah, you? well, I think there's, a, there's several secret ingredients, not very secret ingredients, but um, I believe in democracy. <laughs> so I, I don't want to belong to a group where the books are chosen by one person. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want, so my friends at the MSU Library, it's incredibly de- democratic. We each are allowed to, to suggest three books, and then we all vote on the ones that we want to do. And some, all three of your books might be chosen because everybody thought they were great. So then if your book is chosen, you lead the discussion that night. Um, and I think that helps get a lot of buy-in. What you don't want is somebody being, you know, well, I have to read this book for book. I mean, you're always going to feel that way about some titles. Yeah. But. yeah. <laughs> it is good to just own up to that. Right, and, you know, right. you can, and I always say, come whether you've read it or not. You just can't yeah. hold us hostage right. and say, no, 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 don't talk about the end. Or no, don't talk right. about how they solved the problem, right. you know. Yeah. yeah. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is that it's really important to understand the level at which you want to read. So if you have half the group who wants to read, I don't want to be, I love all books, I love all genres, but not all of them are equally discussable, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So let's say bodice rippers, if, if that's even a word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, right. I think it is. <laughs> it is. I, I've heard a people term. talk about those books, though, and I'm always like, ooh, yeah. I know. <laughs> so, um, and romances, we probably mm-hmm. more, more politically right to mm-hmm. call them romances. Um, yeah. They usually are somewhat more formulaic, and mm-hmm. they don't really lend themselves to discussion. Not a, a deep thinking there's not a lot to pull right. apart and play with there because the right. author is following right yeah now now if they, they were an entree into a group of women talking about their romantic fantasies i'd say yeah that right. would be really interesting right <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> but Which it, it could usually, be you yeah. know it could be it depends on how you set the group up and so usually i'm trying to get um, us on the path of literary fiction and i'm i am a fiction lover i'm i have to just say i'm that's why I was an English major and not a history major. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so that would be your go-to would be a good fiction book that you felt had enough going on in it that mm-hmm. it would it would cause it would provoke some stimulating discussion. Right. Then there's enough ambiguity in it. There's okay. enough depth of depth of thought. Um, you know, potential for disagreement because mm-hmm. disagreement mm-hmm. makes for a really good discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, as long as it's not rancorous. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we haven't had much disagreement in our book group, that the extreme history book group. Maybe no. we'll have to work on that. Yeah, and I don't, I, <laughs> I don't know. How I don't think of what we would read where people would disagree. Disagree, yeah. unless yeah. you know. A lot of times it's on the quality of the writing. A mm. lot of times people oh, yeah. look at that as being um, one of the places where it's safe. And and I'm also not a fan of having authors present at book groups because I can see that you can't. Um, that's a very different type of discussion then. It is a very have. different one. Yeah. It's very different. And I remember once we had one of our One Book, One Bozeman books. Um, we had a discussion, and a, a strange man walked in. And I uh, I didn't know him, and I welcomed everybody, right? And so he sat down. and Oh, goodness. And it was the father of the author. <laughs> no. <laughs> and so he heard about the book group? But, yeah, he, I mean, it, we, we very much publicize online, sure. and we say, you know, come if you want to. I have somebody from Philadelphia now who's in my group. Oh, nice. So but did he announce himself? Or he you find, he, out after, after he's sitting there for a few minutes, he said, well, I, I really, I need to tell you that I am the father of the author. Oh, good for him. And it was like the first time that's ever happened to me. Wow. Um, and it was ironic because I am known for saying, 
no, we're not inviting the author to this discussion. <laughs> <laughs> the author's father is even worse. Yeah, I know. That's like the next level of worse. So it changed the discussion. I mean, we, well, yeah. we, it was a book that had a lot, a lot of really great stuff about it. But there were things that this is a group that also likes to say, well, you know, this part didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not going to do that around the father of the yeah. author. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Oh, boy. Interesting. Oh, yeah. Isn't that funny? I've, I've been in uh, these book groups the way you're talking about doing them and it's interesting what you said about zoom being in some ways a little bit more democratic because you're just all on the same flat screen Mm -hmm. and nobody's all together so when i was first here in bozeman and young kids and making friends um joined a book group but it it tends to end up being you know a lot of wine and then certain snacks being made and then certain people are like how healthy do the snacks have to be versus (laughs) not and there'll be that discussion and then there's a lot of people devolving into side conversations because Mm -hmm. it's a chance to catch up and they start talking about their kids and school and then it's it then you get people who are wanting to talk about the book and other people who aren't and that's not a recipe for a good book group and I'm used to sitting in a graduate seminar, and mm-hmm. I show up, and we've all done the reading. We have to do the reading, and I love really diving into mm-hmm. it. So I was, I, unbeknownst to me, I was in the wrong. I was in a book club. Right, you not, were in a club, yeah. not a group. And, you know, I, one of the greatest compliments I've ever had, and, and it's happened a couple of times, is I like your groups because you actually talk mm-hmm. about the book. Yes. Yeah. I think. That's that's exactly what we wanted to have happen. All right, I'm showing up, Jan. That's so. It. Hey, yeah. I found a new plan for me. Yeah, okay. And, uh, yeah. So. Yeah. Well, but don't you talk about your kids because we will shut you yeah. down. <laughs> Only if it's relevant. It, yeah. it somehow works its way <laughs> right, into the book. Yeah. yeah. But if I write a book and you're reading it, I'm showing up. No. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick station break. <laughs> You're listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman, or wherever you find your podcasts. We're speaking today with Jan Zuha about her career as an outreach librarian. So Jan, you've been working in the Montana State University Special Collections Archives since about 2018, and your office has been in there, and you have been working as a humanities outreach outreach librarian and a research librarian within special collections. And so you've been more focused on the collections and, and I would say in archives in general. And maybe before you were housed literally in the archives, you would work with those archives. But I feel like now just being there every day, kind of being in the presence of those archives, you've kind of done more with them and done more work within that archives. And in fact, you're helping MSU students who are not necessarily history majors get excited and interested in the archives and utilizing the archives. So why do you think archival collections are important and significant to everyone, not just like Nancy said earlier, us history geeks who who use the archives for our work. We use the archives um, for the papers we write and the research we do. But, you know, why is it important? Why do you think it's important for everyone to be interested and for archives to be accessible to the general public? Well, that's that's a really good question that could um, be answered in, a, in several hours. Um, <laughs> which we don't have. Yeah. <laughs> Um, which we don't have, right. Or we um, could do and then just edit. So yeah, we'll see. there we go. So, um, so, yeah, so the class that you're talking about is the Writing 491 class that Kirk Branch and I team taught last fall. And 
Um, he and I both wanted to do this class because of that opportunity to help writers explore more deeply. And I see this as a kind of example or a kind of uh, represent, representative of what I wish everyone would do, which is always explore something a little more deeply. And, um, and to also have the opportunity for the archive to spark something creative that um, truly might not have happened uh, had you not been able to be in the archives. So we think of archives as these repositories of primary documents, primary sources, whatever format they're in. And when we say primary, we mean, you know, raw, sort of at the time, eyewitness, you know, as historians. Right. That's, that that's right. what we're talking about. Not everybody understands that. So that's kind of versus secondary documents. Exactly. Se- secondary so resources. We spend a lot of our time in a world especially in the academic setting, of a world that's been filtered by other people. And stepping into the archive, you have this opportunity to experience firsthand, as you do here in Extreme History all the time, what, it, what the people were like, who, who these people were, to meet humans from the past without someone translating for you. Um, and, and that's very reductive, I, I think. You know, that's purely an emotional response. And I have to say that you know, I feel very, very fortunate to have landed in the archives because I have, was a reference librarian, and I, and I love that job. I'm not diminishing that in any way. But that's what I did for the first 20 years or more of my career. And it was when we got the Doig archive that I realized this brought together my past writing teaching experience and my literary experience and library and my love of old stuff, you know. Um, So that convergence gave me the reason to go up into archives and be actually situated there. Not every collection we have, obviously, is literary, but um, that's been a big focus for me. And I think it's delightful because the common person in Montana reads Ivan Doig. Yeah, right. so Ivan Doig, just tell everybody, if they don't know who Ivan Doig is, um, give a little synopsis. Oh, of- gosh. Ivan Doig is um, a Montana writer who died in um, April of 2015, and he's the author of things like um, This House of Sky, The Bartender's Tale, um, uh, The Montana Trilogy, I could go on. It's 16 books, memoir and fiction, primarily fiction, primarily set in Montana, and primarily focused on working class people right um right. uh the the sort of i think second and third generation settlers of montana and sometimes first generation actually some of his books um and so we have this incredible archive that has been digitized where this writer was an incredibly organized uh recorder of every step of the writing process and that sounds more tedious than it should. It's very interesting because he had a very, very agile, creative mind. And so you see seven manuscript versions of a book. Well, students today, you say, can I see your first draft? And it's like, draft? Right, right. (laughs) I mean, we've had this experience, all of us, I'm sure. And so I think being able to introduce writers, young writers, to this this archive, I'm, I'm working with on a project with the Montana Schools um, with Allison Weinoff Olson at MSU to try and introduce Doig into the curriculum and the archive in particular, not just the books, but to say, okay, here's 
the bartender's tale, and here are all of his notes, and look at what he thought he might do with this character, but in fact he didn't do it, and look at these pictures that he took, and he used based his characters on his photograph, and really, I... I find this stuff very fun. I find that fascinating because I'm often, when I'm reading a book that's fiction, where I'm completely drawn into the characters and loving that world that I'm in and really become fond of these people, I I just, I don't know how an author creates that, mm-hmm. especially for it to feel really believable. And you, you if you hear them interviewed or something, you do hear that they did a lot of research into a certain time period or this and that. So... Sounds fascinating to be able to see sort of the remnants of somebody's research of going through and thinking through that and the choices they made, um, because then they bring to life such an amazing story. Absolutely, and it marries the sort of um, it, it. It makes people understand that archives can also be very affective. They're not just informative or you know factual or whatever. They're very. Um, you can approach them with emotion. <laughs> Right. right. And, and I think that's a hidden secret in a way. You know, you can come to an archive with delight, not just with, I need to find the truth. Yeah. Or, what is the truth, et cetera. And I don't know if I'm even answering your question by now. No, you are. You are answering the question <laughs> and, and adding so much more in, you know. And I think what's so interesting about that Ivan Doig collection is that he did keep everything. <laughs> and for people like me who love to see, all those, all that ephemera, all those little bits and pieces of someone's life kind of laid out there. And usually it isn't someone who has passed so recently. He mm-hmm. just passed away in 2015. But of course, usually we're looking at people who died in, you know, 100 or 150 or 200 years ago. So for us to see those little bits and pieces of a person's life is so fascinating. But it doesn't matter if it was, you know, in, in 1915 or 2015, it's still really interesting because you get a glimpse inside their process, but inside them and their personalities right. as well. And with him, you get um, you get evidence of him himself trying to recapture the past. So it's a sort of Chinese box situation. So in This House of Sky, he talks about uh, how moved he was to, to get his mother's and his grandmother's photo albums. And he actually writes this into that memoir. He's, he's, you know, and we have those photo albums in the archive. So we can, it just kind of gives me shivers because it's about that meaning of the past that trying to recapture his mother died when he was six years old on his birthday of asthma. Mm -hmm. And he always, all his life sought connection with her and sought a way to remember what her voice sounded like. Mm -hmm. And those photographs were, a lifeline for him for him right and so archives i think can really be that um even if you're not related to the person you know you can if you take the time and let your imagination work as well as your sense of being a detective you know right i i have to confess there's a lot of envy i have in being able to like go back into that caged area where we're not allowed you know you you scribble only with pencil (laughs) on a piece of paper what it is you think you might need or want once you've gone to the online mm-hmm. database and, and you realize, okay, something's going to come out. I don't necessarily know exactly what it is. And I did a bunch of research up in the archives at um, University of Montana when I was doing some research on Carling Maloof. And um, and it's so exciting when they wheel out that cart mm-hmm. or, we're, or if we're in Helena at the archives and, and the cart will come out with these 
beautiful, you know, boxes on them and you open them up and sometimes depending on how old the material is and you know how it smells but but just not knowing. And then like you said it very much I feel like I get a very different window into a person mm-hmm. that I'm trying to write about or understand when I'm talking and I was just researching archaeologists, you know, mm-hmm. and I thought I knew them but you know them from their their very dry publications often. Um so I love that aspect I can't imagine what it would be like to wander around um, back in there that would be so much fun um yeah so I can I can imagine and um you know my husband now has some of the books that he's made these very large photographic books those are so amazing and I just and the fact that um you know the dean was like we we really need to have these as part of a collection Mm -hmm. Um, at MSU because his work is in collections at Yale and um, uh, Stanford, at Library of Congress, other places, and then to have them buy a whole bunch um, and to have them there, I thought this is like his grandkids, mm-hmm. you know, great grand, whatever mm-hmm. in the future might come back. Um, my daughter's only 16, so we're not there yet. Yeah. But, but, um, but it would be fascinating because I really want Greg someday. Yeah. I hope she's listening. Um, to come back and be able to see, you know, mm-hmm. what this experience was like mm-hmm. and what he put together and what was so important to him at that time, mm-hmm. knowing that these places are changing rapidly. But so I, um, that's leading me around to our, our next question, um, which is about what is collected in archives. And one of the things Crystal and I have been very interested in is um, how we're starting to see this shift in paying attention to what gaps there have been. I mean, we're always interested in the gaps in the historical record, the archaeological record, telling the stories of people who maybe even didn't read and write or people didn't collect their stuff, they didn't have money, giving voice to that. So for for communities of color and other groups that we've known less about or who've been just not as written into the sort of the big histories, um, we're interested in in how and why libraries are now maybe changing some of their collecting policies around this. Can you speak to that a little bit? So, you know, I think the great myth of archives and of libraries is that we are these apolitical objective places that are totally neutral. And we, we know in our hearts that's totally impossible for human beings to be that way. So we... I think the profession, um, uh, which I'm new to, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert on archives yet. yet. I don't know, you know, yet. <laughs> yet. <laughs> but my sense is that the profession is saying, you know, come on, let's let's really admit that we have always actually been political, and that the act of collecting is a political act. The act of not collecting is a political act. Absence speaks as loud as presence does, and. We need to start addressing that. And we also need to make archives into um, something that is places that are more welcoming and more participatory and not just um, custodial. So um, I think that's all wrapped up into it. So we now understand there's a necessity um, to bring those voices in. Women, I mean, you know, people of color, um, LGBTQ. Students, you'd be amazed at how few right. student voices are actually found uh, of any level in in archives. So that's why one reason why I really wanted to do the COVID collection this past oh, nice. um, year because I think you know it won't be hard to find the official record 
but uh, it will be hard. Well, no, I actually think it's going to be easy now because many of us have felt this way to find how the, the average student, how this, how this affected them, what, how, you know, at the time. So that's what the COVID collection mm-hmm. is. Yeah, is. Tell us a little yeah. bit about, yeah. How so um, I have such great colleagues at MSU. So Kirk Branch, who is, you know, the right now the chair of the, the English department, uh, contacted me and um, one of our other archivists at the time and said, you know, I'm having, my, my students are kind of, they're really keen to write about what's happening to them. He's, he's one of the writing program, um, you know, he used to be the director of it. Uh, and and he said I'm I'm kind of thinking that I want to change my final assignment into for this first semester of COVID um, into writing about what's happening to them and I wondered if there's space in the archives for them and I Fantastic. was like holy crap yeah <laughs> yes absolutely um, so then we reached out to um, I reached out to all of these different um, faculty. A lot of them were in the College of Letters and Science, but we also have some people in, um, gosh, I can't even remember. We have it across all disciplines, but okay. we have about probably around 25 classes. Oh, that's wonderful. And um, different kinds of materials. Some of them are visual. We have some art projects that came in. They all had to be digital in some way. They had to be, if they were originally physical, they had to be digitized, photographed. And um, we have just finished processing those. I say we very loosely. My very talented digital processing colleagues finished putting these into a findable format, and uh, we're going to announce their availability. Um, There was an uh, article in Mountains and Mines, which is one of the MSU publications, um, that drew on Kirk's classes, uh, writing 326, his students. Um, so I'm, I really want students in the future to be able to come and not just look mm-hmm. at the exponent or, you know, well, the Montanan does, isn't published anymore, um, but, you know, to be able to find those kinds of voices and recognize themselves potentially or, or see how different life was, you know, 100 years from now. Um, and we have also made efforts to get the papers of some of the student groups, um, the QSA, um, the Queer Straight Alliance students. And that's one of the more popular, this proof to me that students are hungry for other student voices. Because yeah. when we have classes in and we say, well, would you like to look at the QSA? Oh, yeah, 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 let's look at the co-. And they're amazed at the level of hatred and prejudice that mm-hmm. is shown in those 1970s files. Wow. It's pretty... Wow. Mm. Yeah. It's pretty dismaying. I'm amazed they go back to the 1970s. You didn't know that. uh, You know, they, um, these, I would have, I'm not sure what the original date of that group is or if they morph from one thing to another because I haven't looked at those files recently, but, um, but they have materials that go back further than you would expect. And Mm -hmm. it's, um, yeah. So fantastic. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, you know, these places are so important for holding all this knowledge, all this information. And um, 
you know, Jen, you and I have had numerous conversations now about the book, The Allure of the Archives, mm-hmm. which is a great little book. Everyone out there should read it. It's and Bob Rydell's favorite book on archives. So is it, it has really? to be. Oh, really? There yeah. we go. <laughs> <laughs> He's the one that turned me on to it. Okay. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And it was, it's, uh, it's just, a, it's a quick read, but it's a very, in-depth read and but it really describes I think that the author really captures why people like me are just fascinated with the archives and why we love to go into the archives kind of like what you were saying earlier Nancy about how when you walk in and you you know you're you, you write down what you want and you hope you get this treasure that comes back and usually it's a treasure and then some you know right, usually right. you get so much information and and so these are really and I kind of think of the archives as sacred space um a place of um, where you can find information about people that you, not just the, you know, not just like you were saying, Jan, not just the the names and dates, but sometimes you get a little bit more than that. You get a little peek into who they are, what their personality is, if you're really lucky. And so it's just amazing to me to open an archival folder and see a letter written by someone you know, 100, 150 years ago, and to see their their cursive writing and their signature at the bottom, and to find out a little bit more about their lives. So, so these these places are important, and and I think they're sacred. But um, can you expound a little on and tell us why libraries and these archives? And I don't know. Would you use the same word, sacred? Or would you use another word? Why are these? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I like the word sacred, um, but I think one word doesn't do all of it. Um, there, you know, there, there are places of um, where curiosity can be nurtured and piqued, and uh, where connections are made. You know, um, I think those things are all. If that's what makes them sacred, I don't know. You know, I, I would. I'm was raised Catholic, and so I shy away from words like sacred sometimes. Yeah, here, yeah. here, I was raised Catholic also. Yeah. And now, now and I'm not, I, I wasn't. I was wait, raised Methodist, wait, so okay. maybe that's why I'm not shying yeah. away so much. But, but I, I like the ritual of going into the archive. I mean, they're always like, you need to put your bag there, you need to only have pencils, you mm-hmm. have to do, there's all these things you have to do, and there's a nice protocol just to make sure everything always stays the same and be available for the next person. I I feel like from the way you're talking about it, Crystal, it seems sacred to you because you feel like it's a way to engage directly with something from the past. It's it's kind of how I feel also when we're digging and you hold Mm -hmm. that artifact that's Mm -hmm. come out of the ground. It's the very same feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And for you, that's, that's, you know, you have this reverence for it and for what it can do to spark that. But I feel like also, Jan, what you're saying is it can be a place that if people think of sacred as something very solemn and internal, you know, it instead could be this place where you're engaging in an outward way and this whole new creative burst can come forth and connect you in different ways. I think that's, um, yeah, that things I'm trying to, I'm trying to move people away from the idea that archives are sort of forbidden in some way and sacred smacks to me of that in a slight way. I mean, you know, and, right. and of course, I grew up in the time when it it, it was a quiet place, mm-hmm. and you could only get in with. Well, I I wouldn't say you couldn't get in if you didn't have the credentials, but it was definitely mm-hmm. a place where not just anyone could go. Right. You know, so so that probably comes into my 
vocabulary because that's mm-hmm. my experience. Today. And that's the way libraries yeah. used to be, really. Yeah. So I'm really happy that we're kind of we're we're trying to um, straddle those worlds now. I think, especially in archives, we know we have to and want to preserve the past and make sure that you know generation after generation has the same access. But we also know that we won't be funded to keep these things if we don't actually expose them in some way and encourage people to make new products out of these original documents, to think of them in new ways, to be creative and to be very open about that um, and not sort of Bartleby the Scrivener, you know, if you're a Melville fan. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly. So, um, yeah, it's, I, I've read some, I read one very moving article about a woman's experience in archives, and I wish I could remember the title and the author and all of that, but she was sitting in the Newberry, and, in the Newberry Library in Chicago, and she's, she's Native American, and she's looking through uh, Native American papers from her people in this neoclassical building in an urban setting, and she's very, very uncomfortable with that and um but very moved by this and she writes poetry about the experience Mm -hmm. and that to me is very very exciting if i could say like some poetry came out of this archive to me that's like we we succeeded you know Mm -hmm. and it's the experience though of encountering it Mm -hmm. and that's what i wanted to get back to um jan is that when we were talking about you were saying archives, collecting, being a political act, it always has been. And when we think about wanting to broaden who's included in that and whose voices and, and what materials, I I wonder, what I think of exactly the type of individual you were just describing who may feel, well, we have documents, we have things that might be appropriate for an archive, but why would we want them to go mm-hmm. to an institution mm-hmm. like MSU or something like that? So <clears throat> there has to be, I imagine, some tension into, because this whole idea of collecting, right? As archaeologists, we deal with this with the material past, and these are things of deep time and, and ancestors, and here they are sitting in a museum shelf, often in the dark, mm-hmm. and sometimes people are simultaneously grateful that certain things have been preserved um, and also disturbed right. by the fact that they're in there. And I imagine that must be somewhat, of, and I, again, given that archives is not sort of the whole, your whole career, but I just, I just wondered what difficulties there might be in even trying to achieve that goal of broadening. Included. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, Basically, uh, a lot of Native American collections, materials should reside, continue to reside with the tribes, and they and they do. Um, a lot of what we have in our special collections are through Na- Native Americans through white eyes. Right. So you know that has to be understood um, and talked about openly. Um, I think there is more interest now in community archives and in uh, less institutional custodial you know I think archives have traditionally been thought of as residing in these big institutions like MSU isn't such a big institution but you know right 
Right. These weighty plays. I mean, think of the Newberry in Chicago. You know, yeah. that's but there's a lot of rules and regulations yeah. and mm-hmm. access, mm-hmm. and there is a whole. I mean, maybe it would be different now with the new building they're constructing on campus. That's going to be. I don't know what it's called. Is it a Native American? The Native um, American, American Cent- Center. Uh, what is it called? I don't know the name Sorry, of it. I yeah, and perhaps either. there may be um, room for a repository there that has a different yeah. sense of of access and who's holding it. I don't know. I don't know either. That's a really good question. Um, it would seem to be a more comfortable place right. for objects and materials to. Mm-hmm. to reside mm-hmm. yeah well someone should get on that yeah right <laughs> there we've oh, said but, it but i think I you know, go now <laughs> <laughs> i think that you talk about that idea of accessibility though as well and that now archives they're moving towards making everything digital which makes it accessible yeah i think that that's um i think you want to be careful when you say the word everything okay because Digitization is an incredibly expensive and time-consuming proposition, and it is in itself, again, another sort of political decision. What is it that gets digitized? Mm, Um, Yeah. uh, You know, you have to make choices. You can't say, we're going to digitize everything. Some things, A, are not digitizable. (laughs) Right, right. Um, and, And other things, you know, not everything is equal. Well, who makes that decision? How yeah. do you make that decision? Um, what do you consider? And there, are, there's, there's lots of, lots of things that go into that that um, um, we don't have the time. Right, <laughs> and it's, it's also a very different experience, though. To, I mean, to see a document digitally, you yeah. can get the information, mm-hmm. but it's definitely not the same experience as we were talking about right. going into those spaces and then seeing an original document of something. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and another interesting problem now is this inability to read cursive writing. Mm-hmm. Oh, right, I love exactly. that. It is it is so much fun to try to get mm-hmm. in there and figure out how someone's making letters. But I think below our generation, yeah, because I mean, they, my son, my son never learned cursive. He's right. he's a junior right. in high school this year, so that I think it was about that time frame that they stopped teaching cursive. Yeah. So that's going to be problematic. For how are we going to read our documents, our founding and, you know, documents? There or, are vendors who are experimenting with um, OCR for script but um, what is OCR? OCR sorry optical character recognition where so machine so type is very easy to do that because you're you're scanning something and it's and you've you've trained the software to, oh yeah the humanity to see it talking right yeah. <laughs> you trained your software to yeah it has an AI to, thing going on right to, so yeah to recognize we need and, our computers to read older cursive right and there there are vendors who are who are um, producing these massive collections and have been for decades of these scanned documents like from from you know early american history etc and when people's handwriting is uniform that's more possible Mm -hmm. but then we have i mean if you were to look at my handwriting you would never know that i was actually trained in the Probably in the semi-Palmer method, <laughs> but I mine right. is a combination of printing and cursive. Yeah, right. Mine and too. And so, and many of us are. So, yeah. how is that going to be readable? My notes would be useless to anybody. Yeah, but <laughs> I don't think anyone. But my, I mean, my husband can barely read my grocery notes. That I think. Oh, no. um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's a, a really interesting. It's an interesting point. challenge, but it is. it is that connection with the real, with the person, and so handwriting, even if Ugh. you can't read it, is that 
oh my gosh, you know, they were there present yes. forming these letters. And yeah. it is gorgeous when, yeah. you, when you see someone who is very skilled at it or mm-hmm. practiced in uniform. Mm. Yeah. So, Jan, I have another question for you. I'm going to kind of take us out of the archives now. Okay. And, <laughs> and I wanted to ask you about books. And, you know, I really value what you read and, and always am interested to hear what you're reading. So can you tell us some of the books that you've read lately that are interesting? And then can you also tell us, I don't know if you could tell us this, but can you, can you tell us what your favorite book is? Oh God, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't think so. No, never that's, do a favorite. That's a hard, no, that's I a can't. hard, I've, yeah. I, I feel like that, that just doesn't work for me. I, yeah. You know, I, I mean, it's a, it's a fun question, but it doesn't work for me. So, yeah. but I, I just finished doing, um, Pete Fromm's Chronicle, um, Indian Creek Chronicles, oh, yeah. which I have never read before. Those are good. And um, it was a really great book to discuss because it was a memoir. People love memoirs. And it was from the late 70s when he was 20. And it was, I mean, he didn't write it in the 70s, but that was the experience he was reflecting on. And he was so dumb and uh, and he's so I mean and, and I and I know he would laugh I mean you know because mm-hmm. he 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 himself talks about how little he knew when he went to spend seven months up in you know the Idaho wilderness to make sure the salmon eggs were okay. Have you read the book? Nancy? I haven't. Oh my I god! Haven't. It it's really perfect COVID reading okay. because he is alone in a tent in the Selway Bitterroot kind of area and. He has a dog, and that's it. Wow. He has no phone. He has no smartphone. He has no, you know, connection. And he doesn't even know what a cord of wood is like. They tell him when they drop him off, you're going to need like seven cords of wood to make it through this winter. He right. said, what's a cord? <laughs> oh, boy. Why yeah. did he end up, I don't even know how you get was, yourself into this well, situation. Well, he was 20, and he was in, he was at the University of Montana, and he was kind of wanting some experience. He wanted to be a mountain man. And somebody said, well, you know, they've had somebody drop out of this. um, They were supposed to, they had somebody lined up to do this thing where they were supposed to watch the fish, you know, it was, and they, they're desperate. They need somebody. And he was like, well, I'll do it. He didn't even think, you know, and And probably had no idea what he was getting into. Oh no, he didn't. And he, and he, he is such a good sport about himself. And I love that kind of voice because he's. It's laugh out loud. Right. Uh, I listen to that self-deprecating humor. Yeah, and right. I listen to a lot of audiobooks, and that one is a good one to listen to because mm. um, it's it's got a lot of uh, you know. And and he talks about ha- having to having to kill things to eat. Um, if he wanted any meat, he had to kill it, and uh, that he wasn't. And his his talk about packing a moose up back up to his tent after killing it. Wow, wow a moose. A moose. Wow. And it's like. It's, it's side splitting and, and it's also very, you know, <laughs> horrifying if you're right? living right, through horrifying. it. <laughs> right, right. I'm waiting for the wolves to come and take him down. Oh, exactly. Word. I know. Oh, so, you know, so that's an example. Um, and I, I love memoir for that, for that kind of voice that you get. But um, I have to say that The Night Watchman mm. is one of my favorite mm. books recently. Louise Erdrich so is. I just, uh, it had, it had just this sort of, I'm, and I'm not a fan of magical realism, but it had just enough of a touch of that to make it enri- be a really rich version of life. Yeah. You know, I, 
I don't know how else to say it. I'm still thinking about that book. Yeah, um, we read that, um, Nancy, we read that book for um, the Extreme History Book Group. And it was it was such a good book. It and was. It's new. It just was published, mm-hmm. I think, in the last year or two. And last, I think it's, yeah, it's still out in hardback. Did it provoke yeah. a good discussion? Oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah, the only disappointment good... was that I forgot to bring up what, what is it like to read fiction here. I forgot uh, to do that until the end of the discussion. Remember yeah, I said, we you did. We didn't talk about fiction. Yeah, yeah. But that was such, it was, and, and so we, with that book, um, it was so popular that we did two discussions. We did one one night, because we can only have about 15 people, you know, because that's about how many squares you right. can get <laughs> on the computer right. screen. So, so um, we did two discussions. And both of the discussions were completely different, but they were both so fascinating in a mm. lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. And so it was so much fun to hear both groups, which were totally different, talk yeah. about it, mm. you know. And it was just challenging enough. I mean, I think I am at a point in my reading life where I really want a book to be somewhat challenging if I'm going to be discussing it with other people. And what do you mean by challenging? Oh, so I just did a few months ago um, Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury. Okay. And I, that, I can't you recall are, if I've I even read that. You are running that. with the big dogs. It's not oh, really? quite as bad as James Joyce's Ulysses, which I have not read because I've opened it up and read the first page and thought... Uh, uh-uh, I can't do this, and I I want to actually do that before I'm off the earth. But right, uh, but it's a very um, disturbing, very um, it's it's a it's a book where the reader has to do a lot of work, mm. and I think that is so great for our brains to try and figure out what this author is doing, oh, yeah. and to not just dismiss it as well. This is bad. So you have to read with something. intention instead mm-hmm. of, yeah. I mean, it's very different than sort of a summer read, which is what somebody would say. When I was teaching text and critics one semester, it was the semester where we had to read um, the Iliad. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. um, I had, I know that I had read parts of it in college, and it had been a very long time since I'd been in college. And I thought, okay, and they said, no, we really want you to read it all, and it's going to happen over a couple weeks. And someone suggested, because it's in the iambic Benter pentameter that you actually read it out loud and you can get into this rocking rhythmic thing so I did that I was it was early fall and we were also encouraged in Texan critics to have everybody at one time come to your your house so we, we tried to do things outside when we could and have a big group but I remember so many evenings rocking and reading out loud mm-hmm. and I thought if I have neighbors outside mm-hmm. over the fence they're gonna think I'm nuts <laughs> yeah. but it was such a better experience than I could have imagined. And I I think sometimes you do have to do that work in a certain way Mm -hmm. because it was supposed to be an oral poem anyway and heard that way so I I I always think about if you if you go for Joyce and Ulysses let me because I think I could only do it if I knew someone else was doing it and I had a reason to show up Mm -hmm. and discuss it because then I'd really focus on it um but yeah I think also my husband and I were just saying this how much of what we were had to read in high school or sometimes early college how much we missed of what was really going on that the author was doing and rereading things oh, God. that my mm-hmm. kids are having to read in is it's such a pleasure now to understand yeah. the depth of what was going on so you know maybe in 10 years Ulysses will feel just right well know? and you know that's that's really true because I remember the first time I tried to read Middlemarch which I think is one of the best books ever. I I, I thought, oh God, what, what's you know? And then twenty years sudden, later, I'm yeah, reading it and right. I'm going, holy, 
Right. How did I miss this? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I also think it's interesting to think about reading as a physical experience. Mm-hmm. And I think book groups re- reinsert that some. Mm-hmm. So um, reading has become, in Western culture, this solitary, has for a long time been this solitary thing where you're just focusing at you and a dead author or whatever. Yeah. But um, I've been thinking, I, I took a sabbatical in 2011 that focused on literary festivals in England because I wanted mm-hmm. to see what was the electronic book doing with book festivals, with public oh, yeah. performance of literature. And um, it was it was really fun. It was, it was an amazing sabbatical because mm-hmm. I think I went to seven literary festivals. And I, because I'm curious to know, you know, what, why are we so wanting to be in the presence of the author? Why do we want the author's signature? What are we mm. going to do with the electronic? And it, you know, and the and the print book then I think was thought of as oh my god, it's going to go away. Yeah, there was. And that I think now here. we've established a sort of balance. I don't know. Yeah. I think there is think a balance. So mm-hmm. I was going to say um, I thought you were going to talk about performance in the sense that. So I'm very envious when I I hear stories of people who were raised with a parent who always read aloud to them, Mm -hmm. and then they would read Mm -hmm. aloud to each other. Um, I love reading aloud. And that is part of what I mean. No one else in my family likes to read aloud, and I I don't, for some reason, I don't think they're interested in listening to me, which mystifies me. (laughs) Maybe it has to do with your being not photogenic or something. (laughs) Wow. I knew that was going to come back around. I'm better in three dimensions, and I don't know. I think voice-wise, there must be an issue. So, but the the audiobook... It's fascinating because it is like someone's reading to you, mm-hmm. or as we take these long trips and things like that, you can be in the presence of each other listening. Right. Mm-hmm. And Braiding Sweetgrass was that oh, yeah. beautiful book, how my yeah. husband and I listened to it together when we went backpacking for nights. We'd play it on our phone yes. mm-hmm. as we were laying there, and we just had the most amazing experience together yeah. with that book, engaging yeah. it together. So it's so funny how we th- we think of these digital or audio things. I used to feel like it was cheating, yeah. but I'm seeing it differently now. Oh, yeah, you should. Mm-hmm. But I almost wish we would bring back a, a book group in a sense where People did read aloud. You know, I, people, I don't know what that's about, but I love it. There was a while where some of my readers in uh, Wonderlust were doing um, public readings of like Jane Austen or mm. of Shakespeare. And I participated in a few of those where we would choose some favorite passages and then we would do, it was almost like a sort of mini reader's theater. And reader's theater is, is still around. I would yeah. love to figure out how to do some reader's theater because to me that is so rich to hear and to be in the presence of other people speaking the words from a book. Um, And um, so that is kind of, I mean, public performance of literature is kind of something I made up. Right. And I think it encompasses a lot of things. It's, it's the author speaking, it's the author reading, it's you reading to your husband. It's uh, somebody, some kids in, in Fairfield, Montana, creating a skit out of Ivan Doig's a scene in Ivan Doig's Bartender's Tale. Right. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's all those things. It's not what it is. Is the opposite of the solitary scholar reading the words on the page as if nothing. Well, it has exists. such a different feeling. It's like reading a play and then watching the play. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's just a very different thing. And um, I think those, especially during 
COVID, I think all of us have been thinking more about all those experiences Mm -hmm. and what we value, what we miss, and what we can still do, even if we can't all be together in a big space. Um, Uh, Yeah, and I discovered the audiobook thing when I was walking to work and I wanted something to occupy my brain, and I realized that walking while listening to a book re-involves the body Mm -hmm. in a way that it wants to be involved. Mm -hmm. It's a weird thing. Absolutely. It's a kinetic connection with... Um, and, you know, that's me non-scientifically saying, I'm sure that there are reading experts who say, oh, yeah, well, when you move, when you read, you're going to remember it better because of X, Y, and Z. But right, right. Yeah. So yeah. interesting. Um, and I, I just want to circle back around to, I mean, Ira Flato on Fridays, he always has a Science Friday now here, yeah. and we get that, which is great. And um, he's always saying in his little promos that science is sexy, right? So I think we want to sort of, um, say, you know, history is sexy, but yeah. I want to ask you why are libraries sexy and books sexy? Because everything is possible. Oh, that's such a good answer. Mm. It's just, and reading changes everything. It does. It can really completely change people's mm-hmm. lives mm-hmm. in unexpected whether ways. Whether you're reading a document, the primary document from the 19th century, or, you know, a great work of literature, or a bodice ripper. <laughs> and I can't think of a better way to end this discussion and go <laughs> on move on to on getting a beverage. Exactly. <laughs> we started with that. We're ending with that. This is perfect. Full circle. Um, yeah, Jan, this has been such fun and um, so nice to have you here in person. And I, I feel that I'm completely re-enthused to join a book group, a proper one, yes. uh, this time around. Yeah. Um, and it's been fun just talking with you about our shared love for the archives crystal yes it's been so wonderful yeah yeah well thank you so much jan it was um so much fun to have you on the program as i knew it would from the very beginning and maybe you can come back and talk to us again about uh, books and other things at another time because we didn't get even get to talk about your teapot collection i think i think (laughs) she's going to be a regular yeah Yeah. like we're going to be like every six months with jan zuha let's do tea oh yes discussion about the role of tea well i just want to thank the two of you because this has been a total pleasure and i love the work that you're doing and thank you very much for fulfilling this need oh, oh, yeah. thanks, well, thanks we've we've loved having um all of our guests you've been especially delightful yes so. and we want to thank everybody out there listening today and we hope you can join us again to find out more about the, the dirt, dirt on, on the past. past and if you're enjoying the dirt on the past make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode also please tell your friends and leave us a review it really helps people find us We're a new podcast and are trying to grow our listener base, so please share. Thanks, and thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out the dirt on the past.